Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And I love this because we're returning to unsung heroes, Stevie. These I want to call unsung bohemian composers. Who would you pick as an unsung bohemian composer? And why are they unsung? Okay, we sort of chose that title because fundamentally, I think through these podcasts, we want to tempt people to just delve a little further than the well-known music and the most famous music and the most commercial music that is available so readily. And none of these composers were unknown in their day. In this world, we cherry-pick. That's the real point. We cherry-pick and just fall back into where we're really comfortable. We say, I like that. I'll hear that again and again and again and again. And as Simon Rattle, the conductor, said about his young family, (laughs) his children having a real interest in pop music and the other kinds of music that are available, he said, you know, I do listen and often say, now that's interesting. They then go on and repeat that a thousand times. So these composers I want to talk about are enthusiasms of mine and the way that I was introduced to them I think is important because the tiniest sleight of hand, a little introduction, someone who says, have you heard this? You know, that's the way these things happen. Well, one of the first people you said, have you heard this very, very early on in our marriage, was Martineau. He was very much on my mind. And he fills my mind to a certain extent, too. And do you know where that came from? Boroslav Martinu. You see, we're talking about two Czechoslovaks today, Leos Janacek and Boroslav Martinu. And the way I was introduced to this is pretty simple. Alan Ridout, who taught me composition when I was a choir boy, every choir boy miraculously had some composing lessons to put a piece of manuscript paper and then begin to be creative with notes. And it went on from there. And I also had some composition lessons with Alan when I was in my teens. And then also he was a teacher at Cambridge. And I was lucky enough to have weekly supervisions with him in my final year at Cambridge. He was constantly saying, do you know this? Well, of course, I never knew anything. And he would play a little bit of it. And there we were, I was introduced. Well, on this occasion, he suddenly said, while we were looking at some manuscript paper that I'd covered with notes, and he suddenly said, do you know how interesting it is that he was a composer himself? He said how few composers actually can write joy. That's just happiness in abundance, exhilaration, happy joy. 
And so few composers can actually write joy in music. It's much easier to write about despair rather than pure, simple joy. It's a very simple emotion, joy. It makes you immediately forget everything else and feel exhilarated. And I said, can that really be true? Because I'd always seen music as being music. And he said, do you know someone who could? That was Martineau. And I'd never come across Martineau. He didn't write church music. He didn't write organ music. Wrote everything else. So he put on the record player. And he put on the first movement of Martineau's fourth symphony. And we listened to it for a minute. And I absolutely got the point. Because the music simply dances. And of course, inevitably, I was drawn into wanting to know more of his music. Now, the whole point of this is that this piece of music, interestingly, was written pretty late in Martineau's life. Most of his symphonies were written in America. Now, his dates, he was born in 1890 and then died in 1950. So that was only four years before I was born. And all of a sudden, this became magical to me. Because you'll remember, we've talked about the beginning of the 20th century as being the 1900s, the early 1900s, as being a time when music was in foment. It was being looked at, torn apart, redrawn in a very modern way. And the descendants of that modernism, Stockhausen and Boulez in particular, were beginning their careers before Martineau died. And Martineau's music sits very neatly in the same kind of mold as the English composers of the early 20th century. Who were? Bax, Vaughan Williams, Delius, and Elgar, who were maintaining music in a more classical way, in a more lyrical way. Is Butterworth in there as well? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course Butterworth is in there. So what that all meant to me when I was younger was that I began to be aware of the differing styles of different schools. Now, both these composers, Janacek, are Czechoslovak, and underpinning both of their work are folk songs. And that, of course, meant a great deal also to Vaughan Williams and quite a lot of the composers in the English school. They were looking to folk music. Now, you can see this in Martineau's music, all of his music, and he wrote a huge amount. But I really just want to try and persuade people to have a little think about his symphonies, because, again, we've said before that symphonies became rarer and rarer in the 20th century as people began to look for more descriptive music. 
So this is music which you can listen to after you've listened to a Mendelssohn symphony. And you can see the parallels, the way that within symphonic form of three or four movements can be satisfying, a satisfying journey. There's another wonderful piece of his, the double concerto, which is two string orchestras with piano and kettle drums. Now that's an extraordinarily powerful piece. It has the most wonderful drive, but also Martin, who was capable of long, plangent melodies. His music is not one-dimensional. What I'd love to know is that once we spoke to Paul McCartney, who was composing music, and at that particular time when we were talking to him, he was thinking of doing a huge choral mass or something like that. Do you remember? A huge piece for orchestra and choir. And he said he didn't want to listen to other compositions because Mm. he knew that he would subconsciously maybe pick things up or use them. Did musicians, did composers of those times listen to each other's music knowing that they wouldn't be persuaded to snatch pieces of it? Or would they be inspired by it? Or would they just hear it and set it aside separately? Was Martineau influenced by somebody and did his music influence other people? How do they sit with each other, composers? I can't well, imagine. See, both these composers that we're talking about, they wrote music which has a very distinctive character. Once again, I think anybody who listens as a result of this podcast to that fourth symphony, you'll begin to hear perhaps traces of Vorjak, who of course was the giant of Czechoslovakian music. Now, whether that's to do with the folk song influence, principally Moravian, which is the eastern part of Czechoslovakia, or whether it's Slavonic, northern and principally Russian, is a moot point. So you can hear in both these composers, who both studied folk music, they adored it, they drank it in. Whether or not that is in their music, they developed their own voices. In Martinu's case, it's always got a lyricism, which is what brings a smile to my face often when I hear his music. It's just so... Exuberant, whereas the double concerto, which I've just mentioned, um, uh, is slightly a darker piece. But they both represent differing sides of Martin, whose life, incidentally, was not the easiest. He had the label of being on the autistic spectrum. He was not instantly sociable. 
and he was certainly hyperactive, to the extent that, of course, some people accused him of writing too much music too fast, which is an implication that you can listen to some of his music and think, well, that's not as deep a piece as one of the symphonies. Does that matter? Should that be a criticism? No, I don't think it matters. But I think going back to your question, it's quite important to know that he left pretty soon for Paris and was living there when war broke out. And he wrote a particular piece of music that was in support of, I can't remember the exact details, but it was anti-Nazi. And he was immediately put on a blacklist and so had to leave. And was helped. Paris was occupied, of course. Yes, it became occupied very quickly. And he was helped by friends and a famous conductor, Charles Munch. He was helped to escape and went to America. Now, all his symphonies are written in America. Are they? Now, when you're talking about the end of his life, the 40s into the 50s, there was a growth in America of a certain kind of open music, which is how best to describe it. If you think of Aaron Copeland and his third symphony, the second movement in particular, Allegro Molto, it starts off with flurries of wind instruments, strings and snare drum, driving the action forward. But it has an innocence to it and a sense of openness. There was definitely that influence, but I think he was also helped at that stage by the conductors in America who, by and large, most of them were emigres from Europe who really supported modern music, so-called modern music. The key to this is that it would have been modern then, but it doesn't sound excruciatingly contemporary now. It's still music that can enchant the ear and lead you through a journey. Did he and Janáček know each other? What, what are Janáček's dates? A little bit earlier, isn't it? He was much yes, earlier, he, actually. He, he, he's earlier, and I think he died towards the end of the 20s. 1928, I've got, for Janáček's death. No, I don't think Janáček and Martinu would have met. So it's interesting to see the comparisons. And fundamentally, they shared a huge thread. And Janáček was a much more serious folklorist. And his early career was largely involved in research. And I think he was an organist, but he didn't race into composition. He was more of a teacher and a folklorist, a writer. So the, the same influences were on the pads of Janáček and Martinu, the same influences. The pieces of music I really want to talk about where Janáček's concerned include the glagolitic mass. What does that mean? Well, it's Slavonic. That needs a little bit of explanation. But first, the I can't remember exactly why I went out and bought the LP when I was, I think, about 15 
of the glagolitic mass. But I do know that at that time, Alan Wicks in Canterbury Cathedral was hoping to perform it with the Choral Society, and apparently the Choral Society turned him down. Because it was, what, very difficult? Yes, they said it was perhaps a little too too hard for them. They were an amateur choral society, and I'd heard them do all sorts of massive choral works. But again, you see, it was Alan Wicks thinking sideways and thinking of some of the most exciting music they could do. So I went and got that, and it completely bowled me over. Now, the important thing is that Janacek was not a believer in God or gods. He was something of an atheist. I think there was a commission or he was asked to consider doing this. And it's called the Glagolitic Mass because it's set in Old Slav. It was quite rare then to have a Latin Mass translated into Slav. So it wasn't orthodox. Slav, this was a Catholic mass. So it follows the format of Kyrie Eleison and Gloria and Sanctus and Agnus Dei. And the thing about Janicek's music is that once again, it's got that Martinu thing. It's music that is exultant. It's happy at the right times and rather reverent at, at others. Was he commissioned to write that? Why would he have I suddenly think he decided was. to I think he to was. I think he was asked. Is it like um, people who are suddenly commissioned to create stained glass windows? All they have to be is artists. They don't have to be believers. But quite often while they're working on it, they begin to get a greater insight into what it is that they're portraying in a funny way. Yes. Do you think he became a bit... I don't know how true this is, but with his interest in folklore and folk music, this is set in an old Slav language, and I think that might have intrigued him. It's very, very special. And as you know, every mass ends in a cathedral or in a big church with a lovely organ. It ends with a very loud, joyful postlude as everybody gets up and leaves the building. Well, at the end of this mass, he does two things. Suddenly the organ breaks out mm. in this mass with three or four minutes of just plain exuberance. Now, the thing about Janacek is that he writes in little nuggets of themes. So the little theme for that organ interlude, which we should certainly hear, is this. And on it goes, virtually all the way through the piece. So there's a drive to it, very single-minded. But then to cap it all at the end of that, 
he has a piece which he calls Entrada, which uh, uh, no one can quite understand because that's entrance. But this is at the end of the Mass. And the orchestra breaks into some of the most exuberant <laughs> dancing music again, you see. That's what Martineau has. And we really must hear the final orchestral piece at the end of the Glagolitic Mass. a query for me or the maestro, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch with us on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. And that's it. Now back to the programme. Something of Janacek's that many people will know is his enchanting opera, The Cunning Little Vixen. Yes. Tell me the story vaguely of that. You see, this goes right to the heart of what all Janacek's operas have. There is a sense of a fable or a fairy tale and how we can learn from stories more about us and about society. And this is ostensibly a story of a gamekeeper who is sitting in the forest and a frog jumps up onto his lap, running away from a tiny little young vixen, fox, vixen. And the gamekeeper takes the little vixen home. Because, of course, you know, foxes have always been known to cause mayhem on farms and regarded in the wrong way, I think. So the gamekeeper takes the fox home. And not to go too deeply into every rung of the story, the vixen suffers, tied up, and the gamekeeper lives his normal life keeping this fox tied up. And his attitude then to the fox is that the fox is a pest. The little vixen becomes eventually so frustrated, manages to bite her way through the rope and escapes. And then, of course, creates mayhem through the animals, as foxes can sometimes do, because they must eat. And then the fox grows up, And we see the fox growing up. These are all the characters. I mean, if I read you out the cast list, you have the forester, the forester's wife, you have a dog, you have a hen, a rooster, grandson, Pepic's friend, innkeeper, Pasek's wife, a cricket, a young frog, a grasshopper, a jay, an owl, a woodpecker, a mosquito, a badger, hens, forest creatures, fox cubs. So it's an opera, really, about life in the forest. And there are some wonderful scenes which depict forest life when all the animals are given characters, like a Disney film. Mm. And alongside that, there is a human story in that the gamekeeper adores the young Tarinka and has hopes of marrying her. But Harashta, who is the poacher, also has designs on Tarinka. Now... The vixen falls in love with 
a fox. And there's the most wonderful love scene between the pair of them. There's no more romantic love scene in any of opera, I believe, than that particular scene. And then they breed and they have a family of fox cubs, just as we do in our garden at this very moment. <laughs> and, of course, we, we've taken an attitude to <laughs> foxes that's become quite warm and sympathetic. Now, the story then develops and comes to a climax when Harashta, the poacher, kills the vixen. This happens in the opera. Now, Harashta also then goes on to woo Tarinka. The poacher wins Tarinka. And the very final scene, which is quite heartbreaking but uplifting at the same time, is the forester really suffering and lamenting the loss of the vixen, who he finds dead, so he's back in the forest again, which is where the opera began, surrounded by the forest animals. And he finally comes to the conclusion that new life is beginning again. Oh, yes, and there's a wonderful touch. A little fox cub appears in front of him, which is, of course, one of the vixen's grandchildren. And the final scene really is a reconciliation with the real world and how beautiful and natural it is, and it will continue. But I can't see the vixen here Unless she is spoiled little mother's darling Little rascal Just the spitting image of your mother. Hey there, wait till I catch you as I did your mother. Then I'll see you brought up properly. And he doesn't kill or trap that little fox, does he? No, on the contrary. He feels a new recognition mm. of every animal's place in the forest. He's the gamekeeper. Yes, it's a fable, isn't it? Which is it? to protect certain animals at the expense of others. Yeah. But he's largely coming to terms with the joy of all animals and everyone in the world. Now, this has become one of Janacek's most famous pieces. But his other operas cover a large variety of subjects, including one which is called From the House of the Dead, which is life in a Siberian prison camp which is a very bleak... I should think. But the important thing that everybody should know and be encouraged by is that he believed in setting words to music in speech rhythm. So when singers open a score and begin to learn Janacek's operas, they must learn how to pronounce Czech and what it means they all say that it sits so well with the music. And, of course, for the audience... 
that means that they are almost seeing a sung play. Yeah. And Janacek adds such a depth of emotion to all of them. And I should always add at this point that even though it's sung in Czech, you will always see surtitles, i.e. the the words in English beside it. So you can go to you can go to any opera now and understand exactly what it is. No matter what language it's being sung in, you'll be able to understand it. Because I think a lot of people think that I wouldn't I wouldn't know it all sounds Janacek sounds foreign. It's sung in Czech, that's foreign. I don't know a word of Czech. I might not get this. You will be able to get it. Yes, and look, the cunning little vixen was made popular in the very first case and began to spread across Europe when it was translated into German mm. and produced in Germany. And here in England, we do tend to translate Janacek into English. Does that work quite well? Yes, it does. It does. It does because it brings Janacek's music to life in a way that he would have loved because of the speech rhythms. Yeah. So it has a sense of being a play but sung through music with his wonderful orchestra behind it. Tell me about a Janacek Sinfonietta. What is that Sinfonietta. one? Sinfonietta. <laughs> Sinfonietta means what, a little symphony? Yes. Is it a tone poem? What is it? Yes, I mean, composers use the title in slightly differing ways, but this means that it has several movements, but it has a totality over all the movements so that it has a shape over the movements. But it's less strict about what one might ask for in a symphony. What key is it written in and why did he choose that key? Oh, goodness sake, what does it open in? I think it opens in A-flat or E-flat major. But That but was that... a googly. Do you see I bowled you a googly there? Because I knew you hadn't prepared that. <laughs> and I just wondered. Had you Googled it? So that no, you I hadn't. No, that was a googly. I'm trying to that. use a cricket term now. Go- I, d- I bowled I... you a googly. It's rather strange that actually in 20th century music, we generally don't say necessarily announce a piece by the key. Mind you. You sometimes (laughs) do. You quite often slink up behind me and murmur what key it's in. Or if I'm humming something, you say wrong key. So, I mean, you know, please don't kind of try to use that as an excuse. Pitch. Wrong wrong pitch. Literally. Um, But anyway, Sinfonietta. Look, the the Sinfonietta, you need so many extra brass players. It's exciting. How thrilling. Can we hear a bit of that? Which bit would you like to hear? Oh, the very opening is a is a knockout. Maestro, thank you so much. These unsung Bohemian composers are now sung by us. Their names shall be shouted from the rooftops. Thank you for letting us hear about Martinu and Janacek. And please join us next time for another episode of Joanna and the Maestro. You've been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson. And our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Symphony No. 3, Allegro Poco Moderato, written by Bohuslav Martinu.
performed by the Bamberg Symphony Orchestra. The conductor was Nima Javi. The publisher was Boozy and Hawks Music, and the record label was BIS. Double Concerto for Two String Orchestras, Piano and Timpani, First Movement, Poco Allegro. Written by Bohuslav Martinu and performed by Isolde Suslak, Lars Gardv and the Malmo Symphony Orchestra. Conducted by James de Priest. The publisher was Boozy and Hawks and the record label was BIS. Double Concerto for Two String Orchestras, Piano and Timpani, Second Movement, Largo. Written by Bohuslav Martinu and performed by Isolde Suslak, Lars Gardv and the Malmo Symphony Orchestra. Conducted by James de Priest. The publisher was Boozy and Hawks and the record label was BIS. Symphony Number no. 3, Second Movement, Allegro Molto. Written by Aaron Copeland and performed by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, conducted by James Judd. The record label was Naxos. Glagolitic Mass, for soloists, double chorus, orchestra, and organ. Eurod, Introitus, written by Leos Janacek, and performed by Amarel Gunson and the City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus, and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, Felicity Palmer and John Mitchinson, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. The record label is EMI Records. Glagolitic Mass, Postlude, Organ Solo. Written by Leos Janacek and performed by Amarel Gunson and the City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, Felicity Palmer and John Mitchinson. Conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. The record label is EMI Records. Glagolitic Mass, Intrada. Exodus, written by Leos Janacek and performed by Amarel Gunson and the City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, Felicity Palmer and John Mitchinson, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. The record label is EMI Records. The Cunning Little Vixen, written by Leos Janacek and performed by the New York Philharmonic, Alan Oppie, Melissa Parks, Keith Jameson. Joshua Bloom, Wilbur Pawley, Isabel Bayraktarian, Mary Lenamond, and Kelly O'Connor, conducted by Alan Gilbert. The record label was New York Philharmonic. Sinfonietta, First Movement Allegro, written by Leos Janacek and performed by the American Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Leon Botstein. The record label was American Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> 